Well, hasn't the uh, the worship been good this morning? As uh, as Jason told you, my name is John, and I live in Con- near Conroe, Texas, about oh an hour or so from here. I uh, was born and raised in Louisiana, though, so if you have a hard time understanding me, that's probably why. And uh, it's a privilege to be with you today. I if I sound a little congested, I had a a birthday yesterday, and we had some friends over to the house, and somewhere between friends coming and friends leaving, I started getting a little head cold. So uh, we're going we're gonna to shrug that off, but I am uh, so excited to be here with you today and be able to fill a pulpit. I, uh, I, I travel and preach full-time. This is what I do. been doing that full-time now for about almost the last three years. It'll be three years in September, and uh, God has allowed my wife and I and my, our family to go all over just sharing the good news of Jesus. And uh, I come to you today as a, as a preacher that believes in the authority of God's Word. I don't believe in mumbo-jumbo Christianity. I don't believe in uh, telling you what you want to hear. I believe in telling people what they need to hear because the gospel changes people's lives. And uh, I believe in being, a, being in a place, in a, in a house of God where, the life, where there's life of God. Did y'all know Jesus came to give life and not take life? And I go to a lot of churches where, that are that are, you know, it looks like the only job they could get is cruise director on a Titanic. And, uh, and I come here today to say this, if God's given life, live. Put a smile on your face, a pep in your step, because joy comes in the morning. So um, I am just excited to be here, and I want to start off today with a little, uh, just with a little, little funny way to get started. How many of you have ever taught, any, whether it be in church, school, or at home, kids or teenagers about about the Bible in some capacity. Awanas, whatever. Okay. So you know then that there are times when kids misinterpret what you say. And if you're a parent, you really understand that. And uh, I was reminded of a Sunday school teacher who decided he wanted to to, uh, take his students and make sure they really got the grasp of what he was teaching them. So he gave kind of a midterm exam. And he asked this question. Why did God send the flood? Little boy raised his hand and said, God sent the flood because there are millions and millions of dirty people. <laughs> Some of y'all will get that in a minute. Then he said, then he said these words. What is a lie? A little girl raises her hand and says, A lie is an abomination before God, but a very present help in time of trouble. <laughs> I kind of like that one too. Then he raised his hand, he asked, who is Solomon? Some, a little boy answered, Solomon was a king who had 300 wives and 700 porcupines. <laughs> My favorite answer is this, who was sorry when the prodigal son returned home? The little boy raised his hand and said, the fatted calf. <laughs> and I tell you that to tell you that sometimes in the simplicity of God's word, we can miss what he really has for us. And, and so today I come to you, uh, we're going to look at a, a, a story that we're all probably familiar with if we've ever grown up in church in Daniel chapter 6. But, but there's simplicities in God's word that I believe he wants us to, to live out on a daily basis. And the more we live God's word, the more the world will want what we have and the more United, the United States of America will come back to being the one nation under God it's designed to be. But it starts with us. In the house of God, understanding and applying the word of God so that the world that doesn't know God will come to know that he is God. It's Daniel chapter 6. 
So if we're, I'm going to challenge you today to dare to be a Daniel. Now, if you don't know where Daniel is, if you go to Ezekiel, hang a right, Hosea, hang a left. You'll find your way to Daniel. Daniel chapter 6. If you and I are going to dare to be a Daniel, if you and I are going to be a church, to be a people that influence our culture, that make a, di a difference in this, in this generation that we live in, because let's, let's look at the United States of America today. The United States of America is not the nation it once was. The greatest nation that's ever existed is, over the last 10 years, has been among the top three most unchurched nations in the world. In the last 10 years, we've received more missionaries in than we've sent out. As a matter of fact, there are missionaries in the Southern Baptist Convention waiting to be sent. But there's not, there's not enough funding from Baptist churches to send them. We live in a generation today where biblical illiteracy is at an all-time high. Where parents are leaving the spiritual instruction of, of their students to the church and to many people who don't even read God's word. And so if the ch nation of the United States of America is going to come back to God, we can't ask for Capitol Hill to get it right. we got to get it right. It's got to start with us. Evans Roberts, the great Welsh theologian who... Who, who, who coincidentally had a revival start in Wales that spread to the United States of America was the last great revival the United States has ever seen, said these words. He said, if you really want revival, then do this thing. Draw a circle on the floor. Get in the middle of the circle and say, Lord, start revival right here. And so I come to you today, not as a preacher who says, I've got it all figured out. I come to you today as somebody who desires to influence and impact my, my culture and understands that I'm not doing what I need to do and that God is calling me and God is calling us to profess Him to not just come and sit in pews and fill church roles, but to go out on a mission to fill the roles of heaven because it's not just, it's not just our desire to go to heaven. We should desire other people to go along with us. And so today, we're going to look at a man who, in spite of all adversity, in spite of what everybody else in his, in his nation was doing, he chose to follow God, and his nation and his world was radically impacted as a result. And I believe that the United States of America can get back to the godly heritage it was started on. But it won't start till the people of God are willing to get right before God. So today, I'm going to challenge you to dare to be a Daniel. So if you and I are going to do that, some things have to happen. Go with me to Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6. King Darius decided to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom, and he stationed them throughout the realm. And over them, three administrators, including Daniel. These satraps would be accountable to them so that the king would not be defrauded. Daniel distinguished himself among the administrators and satraps because he had an extraordinary spirit. So the king planned to set him over the whole realm. The first thing I want you to see tonight is this. If you and I are going to be a people that don't just do business as usual Christianity, a people that really, really, really want to see America come back to God, who really want to leave a lasting legacy for our children and our grandchildren to have, if we're really going to do that, and if we're really going to dare to be a Daniel, there must be a standing out from the crowd. A standing out from the crowd must occur. Daniel was not the only Israelite in this story, in this time. He was not the only God-fearing person in this time, but yet he's the only one mentioned. 
Daniel was not the only person on the earth, yet there was something about him that stood out. And so here's what I'm, t- here's what, here's what God is saying to you today through this vessel is this, that God does not call us as Christians to fit in. He calls us to stand out for his glory. It's high time for the church to stop looking like the world and start looking like Jesus. And I believe that we're not supposed to just stand out from the world and not just look like the world and smell like the world and act like the world because it's not a problem when the world acts like the world. It's a problem when Christians act like the world. It's not a big deal when a non-Christian acts like a non-Christian. The bigger deal is when people who profess Jesus act like a non-Christian. But I also believe that the people in the church need to stand themselves out from other people in the church. Because the most, there's a lot, there's a, a trend going on in American Christianity today that average is just good enough. That status quo Christianity is going to get it done. That I can just go give God an hour on Sunday morning, I can give God an hour on Sunday night, I might even be able to squeeze in Wednesday night if Dancing with the Stars doesn't consume my time. Listen, folks, when did Jesus ever go part way for us? He went all the way. And Jesus is asking you and me to stand out from the crowd, to be, to be that Christian that says, I'm not satisfied with just the status quo. I'm not satisfied with being like everybody else, including other church members. I want to be and go as hard after God as I possibly can. I want to go as hard after Him and harder after Him than I go after anything else. After all, it was Jesus who said these words. Anyone who does not hate his father and mother, brother and sister, is not worthy of being my disciple. Now, teenagers and, and, and young people, the Bible does not say you are to hate your parents. So don't go home and say, well, Jesus said I could hate you. Here, he was using a hyperbole, which means these words. That word hate means to prefer above. So if Jesus is saying this, if there's anything in your life, anything in my life that we prefer and love above him, then we're not worthy of following him. And I would venture to say this, that the church in America today prefers a lot of things more than we prefer Jesus. We prefer convenience. The pastor preaches too long and the Methodists beat us to lunch. It's bad news. We prefer we prefer our sanctuary to be a certain way, a certain temperature. We prefer things the way we want it. But Christianity is not about you and it's not about me. It's all about Jesus. And we have to understand that if we're going to impact our culture, we have to stand out from the crowd. There's too many, there's too many Christians who are running around that are thermometers and not thermostats. You all know what the difference is? A thermometer is affected by its environment. A thermostat affects the environment. And for far too long, the church has allowed the culture to dictate to us what's going to happen. I believe with everybody else coming out of the closet, it's high time the church does too. Some of y'all will get that in a minute. Why was it that Peter and James and John, three of Jesus' 12 disciples, got to go with him on the Mount of Transfiguration? Why was it that when Jesus performed a healing many times, he took three of his 12 men and not all 12? I believe it's because Peter, James, and John wanted something a little bit more. They didn't just want Jesus on the fringe. They wanted as much of him as they could get. And until you and I decide that we want more of Jesus than we want more praise, more popularity, until John Harper decides that I want more of Jesus than I do more preaching engagements or more money in the bank, God's not going to do what I say I want him to do.
because I've got to be willing to stand out from the crowd. See, the average church member is content with business as usual Christianity. The average church member, the average Christian is content with where he is with God. But Daniel said, you know what? I know there's other Jews here. And they're content with allowing the Babylonian culture to dictate to us what's going to go on. I know that there's other Israelites here. But I'm not focused on what they're doing. Because my relationship with God is a personal deal. Let me tell you something. When you stand before God on judgment day, he's not going to look at you and say, well, what did your parents and, and your friends do with Jesus? He's going to say, what would you do? Because it's a personal relationship. So there's a standing out that must occur. The second thing is this. There's a showing that we know God. There must be a showing that we know God by the way we live. Go with me to verse 4. The administrators and satraps, therefore, kept trying to find a charge against Daniel regarding the kingdom. But they could find no charge or corruption, for he was trustworthy. And no negligence or corruption was found in him. Then these men said, we will never find any charge against this Daniel unless we find something against him concerning the law of his God. Did y'all know we live in a generation where actions speak louder than words? Yet we have 75% of our culture claims Christianity. Only about 20% know what it actually means to be a Christian. Because, see, you can say that you walk an aisle and you can say that you've been dunked in a baptistry and you're a Baptist and you, you vote right and you, you live a good life and you've done these things. But what does your life say? Because, see, here's the deal. Here's, here, here's the bottom line. You can walk down every aisle in every church from here to downtown Houston and die and burn in hell. You can get dunked in every baptistry, every creek, every bayou, every river from here to Missouri and die and go to hell. You can say all the prayers you want. You can go to all the VBSs you want. You can go to all the Sunday services you want. But until your life has been changed, until it reflects that God has come in and started working in your life and changing your life, then all you've done is said words and done action. But, but the words that we say and the actions that we do are nothing compared to the action that Jesus did for us. And they said, hey, Daniel, he's got such in the spirit, we're not going to be able to find anything against him unless it's against his God. What if the American church started living the Jesus we, so, we, we sing about on Sunday mornings? What if we started living at home, the Jesus we tell our kids is important to worship on Wednesdays. What if we started living at the workplace, at the water cooler, the Jesus that we talk to our, to our co-workers about? What would happen? Let me ask you this. If you were on trial today for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? And before you say yes, if I ask the ten closest people to you who know the color of your carpet, who know you and still like you, what would they say? Because here's the bottom line. We can say one thing, but so many times our lives don't back up what we say, isn't that true? You say, well, you say, well, John, I'm a good person. John, if I died, surely God would let me in because I'm a pillar of society. Because I'm this, I'm that. Let me ask you this. By a show of hands, have you ever told a lie? And if you don't raise your hand now, you just need to because you just did Have you ever stolen something? Maybe you borrowed something and never gave it back. You took the answers to somebody's test, homework. You, uh, 
you know, that lawnmower that Uncle Bob allowed you to borrow back in 88, you're still in your garage now? Anybody? Okay. Have you ever murdered anybody? Now, before you say no, Jesus said these words. He said, if you looked at anybody with hate in your heart, you're guilty of murder already. Anybody? You ever disrespected your mother and father? I got a bunch of scars on my behind to prove that. So here's what I'm saying. No, we may think that we're good people, but those are four of God's Ten Commandments, and most of us in here are 0 for 4. But you know what the book of James says? It says this, if you've broken one of God's Ten Commandments, you've broken them all. So are we really as good as we think we are? The answer is no. And praise God that it, on our best day, which wasn't even good enough to inherit, inherit heaven, he was willing to die for us. That one lie that you might have told way back in 19-whatever, Jesus would have Jesus died for. That one time that I disrespected my parents, Jesus died for. The one act of hate, the one act of spite that I brought on somebody, the one thing I say to my wife in anger, the one time I raise my voice at my kids, Jesus died for that. The issue is not what we have done or what we haven't done. The issue is what he has done and our response accordingly. Because, see, here's the deal. Let's just say, let's just say that Brother Gene called me to preach, that he called me to preach. And I said, Brother Gene, I'll be there. No problem. Well, let's just say Sunday morning about, or Sunday afternoon about 4.45, I show up dressed just like this. Jason's coming to unlock the service for Sunday, or unlock the church for Sunday night. I introduce myself and Jason's tried to get in touch with me. Miss Mary's having a hysterical fit because she's tried to get in touch with me. Nobody can get me. And I show up and I say, Jason, I'm John Harper. I'm here to preach. And Jason says, well, you're supposed to be here this morning. We had to, I mean, we had to scramble around. We didn't know what to do. And we had to find somebody to fill in. And, and, and I, what went on? And I tell him this. I say, well, a funny thing happened on the way to church. I was in my 2001 excursion. And I was, I was coming down uh, the, the, toll, the Beltway 8. And I, uh, I blew a tire on my excursion. And I would say, now, Jason, you got to understand something about me. I'm not a fix-it man. If you asked me what size engine I'd have, I'd say it's this by this. I mean, I don't know a carburetor from a, from a coffee maker, okay? And I said, Jason, here's what happened. I decided I was going to go change the tire because I had to get here to preach. And so as, I, as I'm taking off the lug nuts on the, the tire that's flat, one of the lug nuts hops across the beltway onto the other side of oncoming traffic. And I said, Jason, you can look at me and tell that I am pretty fast. Not really. <laughs> and I decide that I am going to go and pick up that lug nut because I can't put the spare tire on without having all the lug nuts on. So I run as fast as I can. And I go and I get the lug nut. And about the time I pick the lug nut up, an 18-wheeler in the other lane comes and runs over me. When it's done running over me, I get up, lug nut in hand, go back to my excursion, put the lug, finish putting the spare tire on and put the lug nut on and drive the rest of the way here. Jason, after I tell Jason that story, he's going to say one of two things. Either you're a liar or you're crazy. Because you cannot have an encounter with an 18-wheeler and it not affect you. 
Church, listen. We cannot have a legitimate encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ and it not affect us. You can be baptized all you want. You can say all the prayers you want. But if your life has never been changed by the God who died for you, and notice I said the God, not a God, the God, Jesus. If your life has never been changed by Him, then I would ask you today, do you know for sure that if your existence on this planet ends tonight, you will spend eternity with Him? See, there's two kinds of people in the world. Those who will spend eternity with God in heaven and those who will spend a few seconds long enough to go straight to hell. Which one are you? The only way to know is that to ask yourself this question, has my life been changed? The next thing I want you to see is that we must be solid in our commitment despite our circumstances. Verse 6, so the administrators and satraps went together to the king and said to him, may King Darius live forever. All the administrators of the kingdom, the prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an edict that for 30 days, anyone who petitions any god or man except you, the king, will be thrown into the lion's den. Therefore, your majesty, establish the edict and sign a document so that as a, as a law of the Medes and Persians, it is irrevocable and cannot be changed. King Darius signed a document. Verse 10, when Daniel learned that the document had been signed, he went into his house the windows in his upper room opened toward Jerusalem, and three times a day he got down on his knees, prayed, and gave thanks to God, just as he had done before. Then these men went up as a group and found him petitioning and imploring his God. So they approached the king and asked about his edict. Didn't you sign an edict that for 30 days any man who petitions any God or man except you, the king, will be thrown in the lion's den? The king answered, as the law of the Medes and Persians, the order stands and is irrevocable. Did you all hear what's going on? These guys go to the king and they, they, they make a law that nobody else can be worshipped but King Darius. And if you are worshipped, you're thrown into the lion's den. Have you ever had circumstances in your life that maybe just didn't work out the way you wanted them to? I believe one thing that cripples the American church today is circumstantial Christianity. We follow God when it's easy. We serve God. When everything's peachy keen, but when everything caves in, when our world begins to start getting a little rocky and stormy, when God doesn't seem to be right beside us like he once was, many times we turn and try to handle things our own way. Many times we try to take over. Many times we try to serve God into the passenger, or into the passenger seat and we get into the driver's seat. But notice what Daniel did. The Bible says that he knew that the document had been signed. And Daniel didn't just throw a hissy fit and say, oh, well, it's done. God, I don't know what you're going to do. I can't pray anymore. Can't serve you anymore. Man, if I do this, I'm going to lose everything. You know what Daniel did? He did exactly what he had done before. He got on his knees before God and he prayed and he sought the face of God. Here's the deal. Circumstances are going to come and circumstances are going to go. But God has to be bigger than your circumstances. And know this, folks, I'm saying that right to myself. Because there's so many times I left, a, I left a, a church staff position almost two and a half years ago, a full-time salary that had become my comfort zone. God had been telling me for about two years prior to that he wanted me to go on the road and preach. And I told God no. Had a wife and three kids and I like to eat. And I told God that it just didn't make sense. Have you ever, has God ever asked you to do something that just didn't make sense? And I wrestled with God and I told God no. And for the better part of two years, I was miserable. 
Because I was outside of God's will because what God wanted for me and for my family was not something I was willing to go, I was willing to go with. And finally, on September, finally about September 1st of 2008, God got my attention and I surrendered and I went full time. And it, it, it's, it's been hard. And there's times when I'm like, okay, God, you, you got to do something. But can I tell you this? In the times when God doesn't do what I think I, I, He should do, He's still God. When I don't have any preaching engagements for three, four weeks, He's still God. Folks, when your health is depleting, when your kids are going crazy, when Capitol Hill keeps getting worse, when things seem bleak, God's still God and He's still on the throne. We can take a lesson. We can take a lesson from people in other nations that are converting from Islam to Christianity. Matter of fact, when the Spirit of God is moving in huge ways in places like Saudi Arabia, in places like China, in places like that that are close to the gospel, but the Spirit of God is moving in huge ways. And, and if you're over there and you've been a Muslim for a long time, you convert to Christianity, listen to what happens. Your family declares you dead. They hold funeral services for you. Many times you're written out of the will. But not one of those converts from Islam to Christianity has ever gone back and said, man, I'll take Islam again. They've all said, I'll stay the course with Jesus even if it means I lose my life. What if we in America got like that? That says no matter what happens, no matter how bad things get, no matter if I hit the very bottom of the barrel, that I don't have to worry about the future because I know who holds my future. How different would our churches and our nation be if American Christianity wasn't based on circumstance, but was just based on letting God be God? And doing what he does. You know the song, It Is Well With My Soul? Old Baptist table. I must have sang it when I come out of my mama's belly. Because I grew up in a Baptist church. Horatio Spafford, the man that wrote that song. Had some tragic circumstances happen when he wrote it. He was over in the States attending to some affairs. He had his wife, his daughter, and his niece with him. And they were going back over to Great Britain where they lived. And he still had to finish up some stuff here. And so he sent his wife and the two girls on a boat back to, to uh, the UK and he said, I'll catch up with you later. Well, the boat that the ladies were on capsized. The daughter and the niece drowned. Horatio Spafford got a telegram from his wife that said two words, survived alone. He hopped the next boat from America to the UK and he asked the ship's captain, he said, when, when we get to the spot where my niece and my daughter lost their lives, would you stop so I can have a time to reflect? And the man said, sure. They got to that spot, and Horatio Spafford took out a pen and wrote, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, you have taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. That's a man who's whose security, and that's a man whose, whose purpose in life was not found in his kids or in his niece or in his well-being. It was found in Jesus. And when our churches in America today understand that He is unshakable and unmovable, He is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and He is still God, 
And despite the circumstances, we can still be solid in our commitment. We don't have to be jello leg Christians. We can be rock solid because we serve a rock solid God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So I don't know what storm's going on in your life. I don't know how bad it is, but I do know this. There's a God up in heaven named Jesus that's bigger than what you're going through. There's a God up in heaven named Jesus who conquered death, hell, and the grave. If he conquered that, he can conquer what's going on in your life. So just let him be God and stop trying to be. But the next thing I want you to see is this. That if we're going to be a, a Daniel, we've got, we got to be sharing what God has done for us. Look at verse 21. Then Daniel spoke with the king. May the king live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths. Now here's the deal. Here's the deal. Daniel's been thrown in the lion's den. And, the, and, and King Darius ran to see if he had been delivered. And Daniel just shared with him what God has done. If you've been saved by Jesus, you have a testimony. You don't have to be a preacher. You don't have to be very educated. You don't have to have a fat bank account to share with you what, to share with others what God has done for you. Do you hear what he said? He shut the lion's mouth. Y'all know how Satan is, is uh, one of the ways he's depicted in Scripture is a lion that prowls around looking for whom he may devour. Listen to what Daniel said. My God came and shut the lion's mouth. If you're a Christian, that's what happened in your life. Jesus came and shut the mouth of the lion. He came and defeated Satan in your life. And you say, well, I may not know how to share something with Jesus. Share Jesus with somebody. Share what he did in your life. How he took you and how he changed you and, how, and what he's done in your life now. Why? Because they may try to discount this book, but they can't discount what he's done in your life. And evangelism is not just a job of your church staff or your deacons. It's every one of us that profess Jesus. It's our job. In, in Matthew 29, when Jesus was descending into the, Father's, uh, into the Father's kingdom, He left an ultimatum for His disciples. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Well, those disciples, it wasn't just who He left it for. He left it for all His disciples. And Peter, James, John, all those guys, they're gone. So who are His disciples today? Just the preachers? Just the missionaries? Just the Billy Grahams? Every one of us that professes Jesus are his disciples. So we are to share the message of Jesus with those who need to hear it. Why? Because if we don't share it, who's going to? Because if we don't share it, then somebody could die and go to hell. And listen, in the book of Ezekiel it says that when the watchman, the person who's in charge, who's charged with relaying the message of impending wrath on a nation or on a people, when that watchman does not do his job and the wrath comes, in other, in other words, the judgment of God comes on sin, the person who dies in their sin, their blood is required at the watchman's hands. So church, is there some blood on your hands? You say, well, you say that's my pastor's job, that's what we pay him for. Jesus paid his blood for all of us to go out and share his, his good news with other people. The next thing I want you to see is that we must be saved by God. Look at this, verse 22. They haven't hurt me, for I was found innocent before him. If your life is taken from you today, folks, you stand before God. Are you guilty? 
or innocent? Are you guilty or innocent? And the only way for you to be declared innocent is not to be a good church member. It's not, did y'all know this, that Baptists can go to hell? Did y'all know that? And did y'all know that if a, if a Muslim walked right down here today and professed faith in Jesus Christ, he could go to heaven? God is not a respecter of denominations or people. The Bible says that God came and God desires for all people to come to repentance. So here's the deal. He didn't say for all people to get baptized. You say, well, John, I've been baptized. Well, good, there's a thief on the cross that died right next to Jesus that said, Jesus, remember me today when you enter your kingdom. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus did not tell him, hey, go and be baptized at First Baptist Church of Jerusalem, and then we'll talk. Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. So baptism's not the answer. You say, well, good works. Jesus said, the Bible says this, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves, not by works, so that no one can boast. So it's not works. We've already, we've already figured out that we have a sin problem. The only way for your sin problem to be taken care of and the only way for us to be declared innocent before God is to acknowledge that we're a sinner. That we are messed up. And wives, quit nudging your husbands. To acknowledge that there's only one way for our sin to be taken care of. And that's through Jesus Christ. And to confess Him as the Lord of our lives. You know what that means? To allow Him to come in and change us where we live for Him, not for anything or anyone else. The church I, uh, the church I was most recently at, we did an event called Judgment House. It's, it's kind of like if you equate a living nativity to something that they do around, around the Halloween time, and it, it, it depicts a story that unfolds before your eyes, and it has a, an accident scene and a hospital scene, and there's actually a picture of heaven and hell and the last weekend that we were doing this, a 65-year-old man, tears streaming down his face, comes to me and he says, Son, I want to thank you for doing this. He said, I was raised in a Methodist church. I go to a church of 20,000 members just down the road. And I realize I've never been saved. Nobody ever told me that I'd be declared guilty before God if, my, if I died in my sin." Nobody ever told me that Jesus was the answer for my sin. But today at the age of 65 years old, I realized that I was a sinner. That my sin separated me from God, condemned me to hell, and Jesus was the only way for me to have heaven and life. And I gave my life to Jesus. And he said, now if I die tonight, I'm going to be with him forever and ever. Here's the point. There's a lot of people that think, maybe even in here, there's a lot of people that think they're going to be with Jesus forever and ever. But when that day comes and God slams down the gavel on the judgment throne, are you going to be declared innocent or guilty? Not because your parents are good people and they raised you in church, but because you made a decision to follow God. The next thing I want you to see, and we're almost done, is that we, when we become Daniels, we see the lost come to God. Watch this. Verse 25 says this, And King Darius wrote to those of every people, nation, and language who live in all the earth, May your prosperity abound. I issue a decree that in all my royal dominion people must tremble in fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed and his dominion has no end. He rescues and delivers. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on earth. For he has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. There are some of you who have been praying for a lost family member or friend for a long time. 
When you start living out the gospel before Him, when you start letting God be God and following Him even when the circumstances dictate otherwise, when you stand out from the crowd, when you understand your salvation that Jesus paid it all and all to Him you owe, when you do that, then understand the lost come to Jesus. But what would have happened if Daniel... What would have happened if Daniel hadn't been like, if Daniel just said, I'm going to be like everybody else? What would have happened if Daniel hadn't shared what God had done for him? What would have happened if Daniel hadn't stood out? What would have happened if Daniel had just said, Man, my circumstances, they wrote this law. I can't follow God anymore. I'm not going to do it. I believe King Darius would not have seen God. So the next time you feel like taking a day off in your walk with God, remember. There's a lost person that needs Jesus. And maybe God wants you to live full heart, wholeheartedly for him that day so that lost person will come to Jesus. The last thing I want you to see is Daniel was shown favor and he was surely influential in his generation. Verse 28, so Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. How many of you guys in this room know the name Billy Graham? Raise your hand. You do? How old are you, if you don't mind me asking? Yeah. You're 23 and you know the name Billy Graham. That's impressive. Now, how many of you guys know the name Chuck Templeton or Braun Clifford? One. Here's the deal. Here's the deal. Chuck Templeton and Braun Clifford were preachers just like Billy Graham. Matter of fact, Braun Clifford used to pack out auditoriums just like Billy Graham. Chuck Templeton went on missionary journeys with Billy Graham. Preached one time at the Baylor University Chapel Service on the deity of Christ. Preached so long, revival broke out on that campus that they canceled afternoon classes. But why is it that multiple generations of people in this room, from 23 on, know the name Billy Graham and only one or two know the name Chuck Templeton and Braun Clifford. It's because Braun Clifford died in a third-rate motel room in Amarillo, Texas with liquor bottles thrown everywhere, left his wife and his four kids. It's because Chuck Templeton, who once preached on the deity of Christ, came to the realization that Jesus and the Bible were not true. He denounced his faith, denounced God's Word as being real. Why is it that generations of people know Billy Graham. Why is it that if you go to North Carolina, there's Billy Graham Expressway? Why? It's because Billy Graham dared to be a Daniel. And he's been shown favor, and he's been remembered, and his legacy continues on through generation after generation after generation after generation. And it will continue to go on while Braun Clifford and Chuck Templeton are just statistics. My prayer for you today is that you wouldn't be a statistic. But you would be so influential in your culture that long after your time on this earth is over, your legacy continues like Billy Graham's. So 50, 60 years from now, 20-somethings are still talking about you and what you've done. Because you stood out for the cause of Christ. Because you showed you knew God by the way you lived. Because you shared what God's done in your life. Because you understood what it took to be saved and you were declared innocent before God. Because you were strong and solid in your commitment in spite of your circumstances. And because you saw lost people come to Jesus. 
this church can have that kind of influence and impact. And I pray it does. In just a moment, there's going to be a time for you to respond. And before, before Jason and the, and the accompanies come, I'd like you to do this. If you would, just bow your heads and close your eyes for me. Nobody looking around. If you would say these words today, you would say, you would say, Preacher, I'm not sure today that after what we've gone through that I really know Jesus. I've claimed Him. I've made a profession of faith. Maybe I've been dunked in a baptistry. But I'm not sure that I know Jesus. I'm not sure there's enough evidence to prove it. And I could very well, if I died today, be declared guilty before a holy God and spending an eternity in hell. If that's you, with nobody looking around, would you just lift up your hand where I could see it? Okay. Okay, I see that hand. Anybody else? Okay. Nobody looking. I see that hand. Hands going all up. Keep your hands up for me. Keep your hands up for me. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to embarrass you. Okay, those of you who raised your hand, just take a second and look up here at me real quick. Nobody else is looking. Just look up at me real quick. I want you to understand that raising your hands when nobody's looking is great. But what's greater is this, is acting on the hands that you just raised. So in just a minute, I'm going to say a prayer. When I say this prayer, you, I want you to repeat it after me. And if you mean it and you're serious about it, it's not the words that you say. It's a condition of your heart. I'm going to ask you to, to pray that prayer. And then when you're done, if you're serious and you've prayed that prayer and you're serious about knowing how you can have a relationship with Jesus, I'm going to invite you in just a minute to come down here in front of everybody. You say, why? Because everybody that Jesus called to follow him, he called to follow him publicly. And if you can't stand for God in the house of God, you'll never be able to stand for God in the world that hates God. And because Jesus stood for you and nobody else would or could, he's asking you to stand for him. So if you're serious, in just a minute, I'm going to ask you to pray a prayer after me. And at the end of that prayer, I'm going to ask you, if you're, if you're serious, to come and make that decision public. Maybe you're here today and you know that you're saved. You know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're going to spend eternity with God in heaven. Not a question in your mind. But maybe one of those points that we looked at today is a little out of whack. Maybe your circumstances are dictating your Christianity. Maybe you're not standing for Him like you should. Maybe you're not showing you know Him by the way you live your life. But you want to. You, your eternity is secure. It's not an issue of are you going to heaven. It's an issue of taking more people with you now that you're going. And you would like somebody to pray for you, or you would like for me to pray for you to have the boldness to get some stuff right with God. If that's you and nobody looking around, would you just lift up your hand? Okay. Thank you. In just a moment, the altar is going to be open, and you can have a chance to come and, and pray at the altar. But if you're here today, if you're here today and you've, you raised your hand a second ago and said, I'm not sure that I'd be declared innocent before God, but I want to be, I'm going to ask you to do this. In your heart, pray this prayer after me. Dear God, I know I'm a sinner and I can't save myself. I believe that you came and died for me on the cross and proving you were God, you rose three days later from the grave. I ask you to come into my life to forgive me of my sins and change me. Be my Lord, my Master, and my God. I turn from my sin and turn to you. Help me live for you from this day forward. Now, if that's you and you prayed that prayer with me and you're serious, in just a moment when Jason comes and he starts leading us in an invitation song, I'm going to ask you to come forward. 
and say, John, I prayed that prayer. We're just going to get some information from you. We're not going to embarrass you. We're not going to call you out. But if you're serious and you seriously prayed that prayer, come forward because you've got a church body that wants to pray for you and encourage you and love you in your new relationship. If you're here and you need to come to the altar, when Jason starts singing, that's your cue to move. So I'm going to say a prayer. When I say amen, they're going to lead us. If you prayed that prayer with me, come to me. I'd love to get some information from you and pray with you. If you're a Christian, you need to come to the altar. You can do that. Lord Jesus, I love you, and I thank you for today and the truth of your word. I pray that you move in power in this invitation time. In your name we pray. Amen. You guys stand. As they sing, if you need to respond, you can come to it now. Come in.